Hello and welcome to Manchester, your airport man. I'm Tom Fordyce. And I'm Adam Chop. And together we're taking you behind the scenes to the beating heart of Manchester Airport. From the gourmet dishes served in the air to the restaurants keeping us refreshed before takeoff, today we're talking food, glorious food. Operating in an airport, as you can imagine, is fundamentally different to operating on the high street. Good sound, some salivation already. Football matches, it's the only place I'll eat prawn cocktail, Chris. I don't know why. (laughs) So, Adam, my first question for you. Have you got one meal that you had on a plane once that you will never forget? I mean, it's hard to pick, but I was really lucky, and not even in this job, actually, in a previous job. I was really lucky to be on the first ever flight from Hong Kong into Manchester. Ah. And... The food provided by the airline was just fantastic. I mean, I love Asian food anyway. I don't know if it's just that there's something about the methods of preparing food on an aircraft means it's often steamed, but um, I remember just thinking I would pay 20, 30 quid for this in a restaurant. So how they managed to do it in midair was amazing. I find as a vegetarian that eating on flights is one of life's pleasures because you always get served first. So not only are you hungry and you get to eat your meal first, but you get that, those looks from everyone else on the plane as if to say, why are you getting yours first? Yeah. I also wonder, are there some things that you only eat when flying or you would oh, yeah. only choose? I know there are certain places I drive to Football matches is the only place I'll eat prawn cocktail, Chris. I don't know why. I just associate <laughs> with it. I think pretzels is probably the classic example of I actually really crave the pretzels. Definitely. But I would never choose them in a supermarket. The pretzels is the classic one for most of us, isn't it? Let's say you've got to the airport, Adam. You've gone through security. What is your instinctive next step? Are we talking about a coffee? Are we talking about something stronger, a sit-down meal? I mean, I think it depends on time of day. Um, very much an advocate of find your base and having a nice meal in a, you know, in a restaurant. Like, for example, the new San Carlo we've got in T2, I think the idea of st- really starting your holiday off with a nice meal, you know, in moderation, nice to have a couple of glasses of wine or a couple of beers if it's the right time of day for that. But I do like to find a base, somewhere that you can occupy for a couple of hours, have something nice to eat. I don't think I'll... Uh, I'll ever be a kind of one who pack my own sandwiches and just heads and sit by the gate. No, that works for some people, doesn't it? My old favourite when I used to travel through the airport um, all the time, really regularly for my job at BBC Sport, if I had a long haul flight coming up, I would favour, and I was going through Terminal 1, I would favour Giraffe because they did a really good all-day veggie breakfast. And I am a believer in all-day breakfast in the truest sense. I could eat an all-day breakfast at any point in the day. Yeah, it's a good show. And I think a lot of people find that, and it's... I think it taps into that airport being the place where time is suspended as well. It's always a certain time somewhere in the world. Definitely, so if you're already definitely. somebody who could uh, do your all-day breakfast at any time anyway, then uh, it's, it's only going to be enhanced in an airport. How does an airport decide which bars, restaurants and shops to put in its terminals? Well, there's no better person to ask than the guy deciding, as we speak, what should go into the airport's new super terminal. And that's Manchester Airport's commercial director, Stephen Turner. Stephen, it's great to see you. Lots of us are going to be visiting the airport this summer. So, first of all, tell us about the range of food and drink options that passengers will find. As you know, we've got three terminals across the campus. So, in all three terminals, we cover all the basics. And we we set out as a strategy to absolutely do that. So... At the kind of bottom level entry, a meal deal from Boots or DeBert Smith, you know, well-known brands, as you know, on the high street. 
And then we just kind of step up as we go through there. And then we go all the way up to, at the very top end, in T2, the likes of a San Carlo, full sat down, bistro type proposition. And then we've got everything in between. So all of our terminals have got bars, all of our terminals have got restaurants. We've got fast food in each one of the terminals. And as I say, that was a purposefully set out strategy that we hit all those food groups in each of our terminals. The bigger question really is where we go from here. Yeah, funny you should say that because you are in the middle of planning for the new Terminal 2. Can you tell us a bit more about it? (laughs) So phase two of T2, so that is our new big shiny terminal. So when we close down T1 and we're out in the market at the moment. So that's what we are now currently looking at as to what else do we put in. So if I go back to phase one, as I've just referenced, we've kind of got the basics in there. When we close down T1, those current passengers who use T1 are obviously going to move over to T2. So we've got to make sure that everything that is in T1 is at least replicated and can we add more in addition to that. So without a shadow of a doubt, we need more coffee. So that's kind of the starting point. You know, who does not have a cup of coffee? And we sell millions and millions of cups of coffee every single year. So there will be more coffee that goes into the terminal and branded coffee. By that, I mean one of the big you know, well-known names, a Starbucks, a Costa, a Cafe Nero type proposition. We'll also add more artisan coffee. So Pot Kettle Blatt that we have in there at the moment has gone down really well. That's just a local craft coffee house, and we want more of that. One thing we've never had in the past, and we don't have in T1, so this is new, so our customers, all our customers, T1 and T2 customers will avail of this, will be a champagne bar. So again, we're trying to step up the levels. We're trying to go that bit more uh, creative. And I say champagne, we'll probably have carvers, proseccos, the whole experience. But it will be a beautiful space, very bespoke. And then from there, where do we go? So we know that we will need to add another bread offer. So by bread, I mean the likes of a pret, albeit it doesn't have to be pret, another outlet that serves sandwiches and salads. There's certainly a movement out there at the moment of a trend for more healthy food, and we want that to be delivered, but kind of a healthy, fast food. So don't hold me to brands because I'm not guaranteed this at all, but, you know, the Leon type proposition. And then the Northwest has always enjoyed a pint with their dinner or breakfast even. So we will put in another bar. So what we have in the terminal at the moment is fairly high end. So amber ale, so that is the craft ale. We have the apiary, which is purposely designed for fairly high end. So less beers, more wines, more gin and tonics. You know, we're trying to take it up a notch. And then we've got the Bridgewater bar in the top of the terminal, which is a huge big bar. And it is a really big bar serving food and drinks. So the bit that we're probably missing is more of a drink-led bar rather than a food-led bar. Nothing super premium, but something that sits very comfortably in the terminal. So with all the heritage in the north of the UK around sport, we are out to market to find some sort of sports bar that can uh, nicely complement the food and beverage mix. Now, the only bit that's then missing, and we've debated at length, is kind of fast food. Where does fast food sit in the terminal? So at the moment in T1, we've got Burger King. In T2 at the moment, we've got Arches, which was trying to step it up a level. The question is, do we then 
try and do something a bit different. So we've actually decided to go out to market and we're at tender for this at the moment for kind of a market hall, a Mackie Mayor type proposition that we have in Manchester City Centre. Can we lift and shift and do something like that? Now it will need adapting. It's an airport environment that comes with a whole host of complexities. But the whole idea there being it will be fast in terms of service, but it will give a much better representation and a broader spectrum of food types. Yeah, I've got to be honest, this does sound rather exciting. I find myself quite fascinated by all of this. How do you decide who operates here? Operating in an airport, as you can imagine, is fundamentally different to operating on the high street. So just as every passenger and every bag that goes to the airport has to be screened, security checked, every bit of food that comes into the airport has to go through exactly the same process. And there are different rules and regulations for the operators when they're operating in an airport environment. So what that tends to mean is there are specialist operators who work in airports specifically. So SSP, HMS Host, the restaurant group, names that you haven't heard of, but they work with all the big brands. So they bring the brand to the airport. And we went out to market and spoke to those soft market testing. These are the kind of ideas that we're thinking of and asked the market to kind of play back to us everything they've seen across the UK, in Europe and internationally, what ideas they've seen. And then we just go through a formal tender process. So we go out to market and we are really prescriptive in our description of what we want. So the coffee, for example, as I said before, there's a branded coffee and there's an artisan coffee. So we will be really prescriptive of what sits in both of those categories. And then they will come back to us with their concepts and propositions, diagrams, pictures, mood boards of furniture. And we will go through a formal process of whittling that down from, let's say, four or five interested parties down to an ultimate winner. Okay. And then in terms of the consumer side of it, how can you tell what demand will be needed amongst all us passengers? All the history and the legacy that we have at the airports and the three terminals. So we've made some mistakes in the past. There are things that have not worked, so you can immediately know what's not going to work. And there are some kind of, you know, the bankers, you know what is going to work. So as I mentioned before, the bars, the restaurants, that whole hierarchy, the meal deals. The question then is how much of each of those do you really want? And how much do you really need? So when we open phase one of the terminal, the bit that's already open now in T2, we were a bit risky. We were a bit avant-garde and we decided that we were going to try new brands and kind of push the boundaries a bit. And it was an experiment and it could have gone wrong. We seem to have just hit a really nice sweet spot that our guests and customers just engage with. So we took a lot of comfort from that and said, right, okay, then we can build on this. So we then, we've just broken it down. We've looked at what we have in all three terminals at the moment, what works, what's on trend. So that's another thing. What's the market telling us? So veganism, vegetarianism, the food halls that you see popping up around the country, healthy food. And then it's a big mathematical exercise. So you know a certain percentage of people are going to buy a meal deal. So then you multiply that by the millions of passengers going through. So how many sandwiches do we actually need to sell? How big a space do you need to sell all those sandwiches, et cetera, et cetera? Tick, move on. How many coffees are we going to sell? So again, we can estimate that. How many millions of passengers are going through the terminal? Multiply one by the other. Right, well, that will quickly determine that you need four, five, six coffee shops, and so on and so forth, until you eventually end up with what we hope is a beautifully curated 
space that has all the food types and all the drink types that everyone's going to need. I've asked a lot of people this, Stephen, but I think you're a good man to help answer this question. Any top tips, any advice for passengers travelling through this summer to get the most out of their food and drink experience? So I guess there's a few things here. We're all acutely aware that going through the airport's a stressful proposition and we try and make it as stress-free as we can. And one of the bits of stress that layers into this is the fact that ultimately every passenger is getting on a plane. So we've done a number of things around the terminal to try and de-stress that. So the boards that tell the flight times, they're prominent. They are everywhere, certainly in the new terminal and in the restaurants themselves. So you should always be within a few feet of being able to look at one of those boards. The second bit, of course, is when you go into a restaurant, you don't actually know how long it's going to take to be served, how long the food's going to take to come. And as I said at the very beginning, working in an airport is a very different environment to working on the high street. So one of the things that we do have to do is serve food incredibly quickly. That's not to say we cut corners. It's a very, very slick, well-oiled machine that can serve food usually within kind of 10, 15 minutes. So the other thing we've done is put boards at the front of most of our restaurants that advise exactly how long it's going to take for the food to come. And it's real time, real life in the moment. So if San Carlo is advertising the fact it's going to take 11 minutes, rest assured, there is a process in the kitchen that's informing that screen. And then the other bit that we've done in the new terminal is we've added what we're calling kind of food and beverage friendly seating which is something that's not really done in an airport. So traditionally, you'd either sit in a restaurant and sit down at a table in the restaurant, or you sat and trying to eat off your knee in the communal seating area across a terminal. We decided to put chairs and tables in the terminal so that people can actually eat on a table itself. And that's proved particularly popular. They're not assigned to restaurants specifically. They're there to be used to sit down and uh, appreciate whatever it is you've bought. Final question for me, Stephen. Have you been through the new Terminal 2 yet to travel? And before you answer that, if you have, what did you choose when you went through? (laughs) So yes, I have. My job actually does take me abroad quite often. So I do travel through the airport quite frequently. So in T2, I was initially wanted San Carlo. And you look at where everybody makes a beeline to, it is San Carlo. So I've done that and loved it. But I've also done all of the units. But there isn't a duff one in there. And you wouldn't expect me to say any different, but genuinely, hand on heart, everything is doing what it needs to be doing. And there's a a fantastic array of proposition in there. By the time that you do sit down for a drink or a meal... You are starting to relax, aren't you? And having a beer or a glass of wine or whatever it might be, it's all part of that process. Yeah, I mean, we like to think that the minute you've cleared security, that is the exact second that your mind switches to holiday mode. The holiday started, you know, and the idea that there's that buzz of excitement, where we're going to go. So I think the more people can get in that mindset, the, the minute they pass through security, the better. And I think that's true to say. And like you say, it can be coffee, it could be for somewhere with the kids, it could be, you know, travelling with friends and you want a nice meal and a glass of wine, but the secret is offering something for everyone. I don't know what your tactics are, Adam, but if I go through security and let's say I've got, I don't know, maybe an hour or so before my flight, there's a couple of things that I will always do. I'll always go and get a couple of magazines for the flight and then I'll also, and this is, I also do this when I go to the beach, I will never take the first seat I see on the basis that there might be, and there almost certainly will be, a quieter, more relaxing seat just around the corner. I don't know what it is, but I, as soon as I get through security, for me, I just want to know where we're going to be located and where we're going to be. My sort of attitude is if, 
you kind of want to spend ages wandering around looking at that shop, then at least I've got somewhere where I can be to read the paper, have a coffee, have a drink, you know, what have you. But I, I'm the same, I'll over-index on magazines. In my head, I'm thinking, on this holiday, I'm going to be able to read all these magazines and books that I want to get to, and invariably, they um, come back covered in sun cream and not thumbed at all. Are there any shops, Adam, that if you were walking down the high street that you generally wouldn't pop into that when you are in a departure lounge, do you suddenly find yourself drawn to? I think it's probably more that there are just certain items that you associate with buying on holiday or on your way to holiday. So I would always just save up my sunglasses need for the airport. And there's probably a better selection or if you could take time to just wait until you see the one that you realize. But I just save up sunglasses shopping for the airport. Same is probably true about fragrance, although, you know, it's always nice to get gifted uh, an aftershave or what have you. But if I'm buying for myself, uh, I probably will save it up. And I, do, I think it's just tradition. It's not even that I'm thinking it will be cheap, although, you know, obviously it is. It's more just the tradition of what you do. You treat yourself, you know, once, twice a year to your aftershave when you travel. So most of us are pretty familiar with pubs. We spend a fair amount of time in them. But what is it like running a pub in one of the most secure environments in the UK? Well, Keith McAvoy is from Seven Brothers, the independent brewing company that's gone from city centre bars to opening one right here in Manchester's Terminal 2. Keith, I'll be honest, I have been looking forward to this and to meeting you. So could you explain, first of all, the Seven Brothers story to me, please? So the Seven Brothers story, where did we start? We kind of grew up making beer, as many kids did with their dads, in the cellar, making homebrew. But what we didn't actually realise is that what we were creating really was craft beer. And this was the family yeah. home in Salford, was it? This is in the family home in Salford, which was bursting at the seams uh, many times, because there's quite a lot of us. So yeah, uh, we used to go down, help dad in the cellar, making his homebrew. Some successes, lots of failures. <laughs> as is the way we you hear the odd boom, and you were like, yeah, something's exploded <laughs> in the cellar. So yeah, that's kind of, we didn't realise then, you know, that we were developing a passion for it. But we've always been kind of quite entrepreneurial, always been looking for things as we've grown older. We've got engineering backgrounds, ex-teachers, IT. We've kind of got a cross-section of experience. But it was only while I was working away in Oslo and I was completely blown away. This is probably about 12 years ago now by the craft beer scene out there. It was like nothing I'd seen in Manchester at the time. That's where the inspiration came from. Traditionally, you know, the beer-making facilities would be down in the cellar of a bar. Guys in Oslo were putting it front and centre, and it'd be shiny tanks on the plinth, and it'd just be going from tank to tap, and it just blew me away. And then I came back and pitched the idea to a, a couple of my brothers, and they were like, yeah, in. And then it just kind of grew from there. So that was, yeah, nine years ago when we opened the brewery, and uh, six years since our first beer house in Ancoats in Manchester. And then, yeah, we find ourselves... You know, eight years later, operating a bar in Manchester Airport's T2, which is just insane, but uh, incredible. We're loving it. When I first saw the Seven Brothers logo on a beer pump in my hometown of Nutsford, I have to be honest, I just assumed that Seven Brothers was a nice idea. didn't realise there actually <laughs> were Seven Brothers. Could you um, help me out here by listing the names of all Seven Brothers, please? Yeah, I should get this right because I do it pretty much every day. Guy, there's Keith, there's Luke, there's Dan, there's Nathan, there's Kip. And then there's Greg. And um, if, if Seven Brothers was it enough, there's also four sisters. There is, there's four sisters. And um, this particular idea, it's just all the stars aligned. And as we kind of were seeing a little bit of success in those first few years, 
they got together and um, they were like, well, you know what, if they can do it, we can do it. <laughs> so uh, they set about creating their own distillery, which is still going today and uh, they're doing really, really well. And I think if I would put my money on who would be more successful, um, a company run by men or a company <laughs> run by women, I know which one I go for and it certainly isn't us. Tell me about the partnership with Kellogg's. I've heard a few things about this. Sounds quite intriguing. Yeah. So uh, the nature of craft beer is that you're always looking to do, especially our brewers are, they're always looking to do uh, new, strange and wonderful creations as opposed to just making the beers that are core range. One of the guys came up that they'd like to make a beer with cornflakes in it and we're like yeah just go ahead off you, off you go do it do it so that first batch we ended up having to buy dozens and dozens and dozens of Kellogg's cornflake boxes and so in they went into the mash and um that's it it was made you know our design guys put together a design in this particular instance they took little um uh, inspiration from the Kellogg's kind of cockerel cornflake branding and uh, out it went into the ether on social and, uh, and what have you about a week later, we get a phone call from somebody at Kellogg's. At this point, I imagine there's some trepidation. Yeah, we're like, oh, what, what have we done? <laughs> what, what's going on here? And we were thinking, oh man, we're in trouble. But it was the opposite. It was the complete opposite. They were like, listen, we really, really love what you've done. Can you take huge quantities of cereal and use them in making beer? And it, we were like, well, yeah, we can. We can take you know, as much as you've got. Because what the situation Kellogg's were having is that certain batches wouldn't make the grade. So they'd either get overcooked or the colour wouldn't be too right or they'd clump together. Uh, so there were issues with them making waste as such. And they were always looking for new ways of uh, using this cereal that hasn't made it to the final box. And they were interested to see if we could take tons of it. And uh, we could. And uh, we then began working with them, developing this new beer. And um, it was a huge, huge success. So it really did open up. And then we ended up then making uh, two other beers as well out of Rice Krispies and <laughs> Cocoa Pops. So um, we, called the, we called the beers Throwaway IPA. That was made with the Kellogg's. That's a great name. Cast Off Pale Ale, which is the Rice Krispies. And the Sling It Out Stout <laughs> with the Cocoa Pops. And it was great. And they are standalone really, really great craft beers. So that's how it started. And we're still working with them now. And I think to date, we've probably taken about 15 tons of cereal off them. It is a remarkable story. And the latest chapter in that story is opening the bar at Manchester Airport's Terminal 2. So why did you guys decide to do that? Well, when opportunities like this come along, that you have to grab them with both hands and don't let go, uh, without a doubt. You know, we had aspirations to become known outside of Manchester and outside of the UK as well. So we do quite a lot of export. And to have a bar which sells just your products in an airport where millions of people are passing through every single year from all over the world, that just made perfect sense commercially. So, um, of course, we were 100% behind it from day one. And the concept behind T2, which is all about local suppliers, really resonated with us as well. It's been incredible. It's put us on the map in a way that we couldn't have imagined. and uh, But still a lot to go, still a lot of work to be done over the next 10 years while we're going to be here. So yeah, it's incredible. It means so much to us. What are the particular challenges then of running a pub in an airport? Obviously, you've got the security issues that you um, have to vet individuals that are going to be coming working for you because it's airside. But there are steps to overcome those that are firmly in place and have been at Manchester Airport for forever. And just the same as running any bar 
you know, in Manchester City Centre, you've just got the operational challenges that you face every single day. Because you can lose track of time in airports, can't you? Yeah, it's 8pm <laughs> as soon as you're uh, exactly. in an airport, isn't it? You can, so, uh, <laughs> so when are the yeah. busy times then in the Seven Brothers pub? The busiest times in the bar at the airport are the morning yeah. sessions. So you've you got know, a smile from... on your face here, but this, <laughs> this is what happens when you go on yeah. holiday. You want to start your holiday. You do, yeah, yeah, you do. And the rules um, change. And they change, yeah. Like I say, it's beer o'clock anywhere, <laughs> uh, anytime when you're in an airport. <laughs> That's, but we, we, you know, we offer a wide selection of beers to suit everybody, you know, from being almost alcohol-free straight up to a beer that will certainly get you relaxed just before about you're about to board the plane. So if I were passing through, Keith, at, let's say, half past seven in the morning, yeah. which beer would you recommend as my breakfast beer? As your breakfast beer um, at seven o'clock a.m.? If you're lucky enough to get in, because it's absolutely heaving about that time, I think, <laughs> I would probably choose a Juicy to start off with mm-hmm. and maybe then a session to end. But that's just my preference. There are beers for everybody, from our honeycomb pale to our watermelon wheat beer, like I say, then to a selection of IPAs and, and stouts. So, um, yeah, it depends. depends what food you're having, I guess. Or if you are having breakfast, maybe. I don't know. Well, I was looking forward to meeting you, Keith, for many reasons, not least the backstory. But one of the reasons was that I heard you would bring in some Seven Brothers merchandise and you haven't let me down. We've got a beer here and it's called uh, Session. And the reason it's called Session, it's a very, very low ABV beer. This is, this is a good one to start off at uh, 3.8%. Good sound, some salivation already. Second good sound. <laughs> it's the best, isn't it? <laughs> so let's have a look at this. It's quite a nice pale one, good head on it. Yeah. Any tasting notes before we dive in, or should I just get um, stuck in? Well, it has tropical and hoppy. And I can smell the very, tropical very nature. Yeah. yeah, it's a pale ale. Normally what happens when you reduce the ABV on a beer, that mouthfeel can feel a little bit, a little, little less uh, juicy. Uh, so to compensate for that, we put quite a lot of uh, dry hopping in there. So all beers get hopped during the boiling cycle to create that bitterness but once it's then in fermentation we then are able to stick in a load of dry hopping and with this particular one they are quite hoppy and quite tropical on the nose and super super tasty that is delightful it's nice, it's nice isn't it <laughs> it's, it's really just nice. nice and light it's, and light, it's got enough need. going on though hasn't it yeah yeah exactly I think it is actually one of our most popular beers. It's been with us since day one, and uh, it's still the test of time. The podcast isn't going to make itself, Keith, so yeah. shall we just have one more from your stash? What I'm going to reach for here is probably the polar opposite of uh, the session beer that I've, we've just tasted. This is called Juicy IPA, and uh, this is at the other end of the scale. Uh, this is at 6% ABV, okay. so yeah, almost double uh, what we've just experienced. So you have to be sensible with these. One's probably enough, <laughs> just before you're about to board the plane. Good sound. <laughs> You'll never get tired of it, that's for certain. There you go. Thank you very much. Just passing the glass across to me. <laughs> You're welcome. Let me have a little, a little uh, sniff first. Oh, distinctively different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot juicier, hence the name Juicy IPA. Okay, let's have a go. Whoa. It's very cheeky at the end, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. It yeah. takes you one, one direction Extra at the punch. end. Da-da-da. Yeah, and that's the beauty of beer. The whole beer tasting experience starts with sight first. Then we can smell it, and we've got another idea of what we're about to expect. And then, once you taste it, you're like, wow, okay, I didn't expect that, or I did expect that. And also then when you kind of, then when you exhale as well, you get another sensation. So the you know, you can, yeah, we all think it's quite easy to just um, taste a beer. You just open your mouth and swig it. But um, no, it's a, it's a lot more complex to that if you break it down and think about it. 
So, um, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that one as well. Um, I did say this podcast won't record itself. This podcast probably can be paused at this point, Keith. So um, I'm going to suggest we do that. Um, the glasses are charged. You have more cans to your left. Let's take a little time out. Yeah, let's do it. So Stephen has told us, Adam, about how the food for the restaurants and the bars gets through the airport. But of course, there is all that food and all those drinks that has to come through the airport to end up in a different place to get onto the aircraft themselves. All those tiny trays, the pretzels. So how does that process work? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating on lots of levels. Firstly, the process of designing a menu and dishes that are really tasty, but also travel well and you can do it en masse. You know, there's a, there's a lot of thought, a lot of expertise and work that goes um, into that. But of course, it is a secure environment and all of that stuff also has to go through a special process of being checked and screened, you know, through the airside barrier in the same way that, you know, the same that we do with people. So there's a real strict governance around how that stuff happens. It's another area where data is really key because you don't want to go through the process of getting things through airside and the extra checks and balances that are needed if it's going to go to waste. So really understanding what customers want both in the air and on the ground and, you know, making sure they order the right quantities and of the right things, you know, that's all driven by data and an understanding of what customers want and that informs what stuff you order. Do you know, I've never thought about the fact that all the food we get on flights will also have gone through scanners that will also have gone through security. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's the kind of thing you don't think about, but when it's pointed out, you sort of think, well, you know, of course, it's a natural thing. And, and, you know, the same goes for all the food that's sold in shops, bars, restaurants, all of that, you know, needs to be checked and screened. And I mean, it's no pun intended, but that extra time and resource needed that has to be baked into the process so people understand that, you know, when they're ordering, that that extra sort of rigorous process needs to be factored in when they're considering how long it takes and how much to order. I'm sure, listen to this, you're feeling pretty hungry, but now we have worked up your appetite. Do not miss our next episode, which is all about the weird and wonderful world of social media. And we'll also be putting your questions to Managing Director Chris Woodruff. 